another episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nathan. What's up, Nathan? What is up, man? Um, so, you know, we obviously did not record last week. Uh, most people thought we probably would come in with a big playoff preview uh, episode, and that was certainly our intention. I wanted to quickly share, you know, obviously why we missed last week and then, you know, just get into to some overall thoughts and reflections. So if you, you know, follow me on social or talk to me directly, like, you know, um, I lost my uncle last week and, you know, it, w- it was really, really tough, uh, especially those first few days. You know, you met him at the wedding. You saw him there. He's a big part of my life. He lived in India. So, you know, you didn't see him as often as I would have liked. But at the same time, um, whenever, you know, we were together obviously always made such a big impression um he's decently famous interestingly enough he's the only indian in history to be an olympic umpire in badminton for three straight olympics he did 92 barcelona you know 96 atlanta 2000 in sydney and now he's almost like the monty mccutcheon of badminton umpires he would train the future generation you know so always felt like a larger than life presence in my life and then you saw uh, you know after kind of after he passed, what he meant to so many more people beyond just our family. But, you know, I think obviously swirling of emotions, um, trying to reconcile, uh, you know, with everything that happened there. I think there's a couple things that came to mind uh, that I just want to talk through. So, you know, the first is I, I lost my grandparents all when I was either not even born or, or very young. And I think although those were hard in the moment, I'm sure I shed a bunch of tears, that type of thing. You don't really contextualize what it means uh, to lose loved ones at that age. I think you certainly have much better appreciation for some of those things as you as you get older. Uh, you've you've obviously spent a lot more time with the people, you know, as as an adult that you lose because you're just you know you have that many more years together. And I think that type of grief is something I never experienced. And you know, people listening to this and maybe you as well have gone through this uh, as adults or you know in that in that age range and probably either this resonates or maybe you thought of it differently, but I think that kind of grief is, is really different because you look at things, you know, almost, it's a very much of like a roller coaster, right? Like you kind of forget about it because in your day to day, you're not always talking to that person anyway, or you're not always interacting. And then it kind of hits you. And, and you, the more you think about it, the more you try to get out of this like mental box. Right. And I think that was something that I had not experienced before. That was, that was really tough. And it is really tough. Like I'm thinking about it now. I think, think about it all day. And it's, you know, for those who've been in that position, you know, they say time heals all and that certainly does. I think understanding when that happens, when you're going through it is, is tough, right? Because it's not the same for everyone. And it's obviously not going to take place at a preordained time. Okay. Two weeks and you're good. You know, that type of thing. Like there isn't going to be that check mark. And so how you grieve and how you, how you move on. And I think this is why it's so personal to a lot of people and like, Hey, I need to be away for X amount of time. Or some people are like, look, you know, athletes, we've seen this, like a player's dad passes and they play the very next night or something like that. Just because everyone's wired differently, everyone's going to process differently. So, you know, I think that was one thing, just it's been a learning experience of how to manage it um, from that standpoint. And so, and then I think the second thing is being that this was my uncle, my mom's brother, um, you start to realize uh, kind of how how close the generation is like this is your own parents generation who are now going through these types of things like these are the people who are aging into their 60s 70s and onwards like 
we're older than we think, right? Like we're no longer the kids with our parents who are going to be there for the, for the entirety of our lives. And you start reconciling with some of that. Like I know my family or my wife's family or other people, like we've, we've all might've had inst- like health instances, healthcare, whatever, like there's stuff that's come up, but until this type of moment takes place, it doesn't, it always feels like something you're just like pushing the can down the road. You don't think about it. And suddenly it, it's on a, it kind of, you know, stares you right in the face and you and you say, okay, I don't have unlimited time anymore with my parents. Maybe this is the first reminder. I know when we were at Booth, one of the big reasons you went back to San Francisco was family driven, right? Like that's where your parents are. Like that's where your community is. And it's something like I've wrestled with and we always joke about like, oh, when am I going back to DC? When are we headed back? And, and a large part of that, yes, there's some friends there that I've known forever and all those types of things. But a large part of that is of course driven by, uh, you know, parents and, you know, we're in Chicago, we're going to be here for the foreseeable future. But in the back of my mind, it's always gnawing at me, like, should we be optimizing, you know, the years we have uh, with our family, and nothing reminds you of that, or, or, or sort of knocks on that door more than more than an instance like this. And then, you know, I think finally, um, so he passed of COVID. And we both know, I think we've talked about this of just how badly COVID is ravaging India. Um, and what an incredible dichotomy it is versus where we live, um, where things are rapidly improving. Um, you know, things are opening up. We've seen looser restrictions. We've seen mass mandates being lifted. The vaccination has been incredibly effective. And it's like all this good news. And a country that we both still have a lot of ties to is sitting here in, in pure disaster mode, right? And I think the biggest part of it is, you know, we've and I'll say me, you know, been callous about COVID at times in the past, right? Like we've joked about it in the sense of like, oh, like the NBA and in, in, in those regards. And and I and I've been a proponent of being more realistic and pragmatic about rules versus being very, you know, like zero zero risk tolerance. And I don't think it takes away from that. But what it's done is it's really personalized this in a way that I couldn't previously envision. Um, I think we've almost treated this like a science project and that we're looking at charts and we're like, hey, what does the COVID tracker say? And what is Bloomberg and CDC and all these different uh, agencies reporting? And, you know, it's like, oh, great. We're down from 4,000 deaths a day to 600 deaths a day. That's amazing progress. And it's like, I know people die in droves every single day from a variety of maladies. I think still thinking about it like so desensitized to say, oh, great, we're at 700 deaths. Awesome. That's 700 families that are going through hell, right? And it's over the course of the last year plus, it's three and a half million families and how many more unreported. And it's personalized the pandemic and the whole experience that we've all been through in like a very odd way, because my life, you know, has been largely unaffected, uh, whether it's job, whether it's family health, you know, yeah, we haven't traveled as much. Yeah, I've been working from home. And, you know, yeah, like I haven't seen my friends and family as much as I would have normally, but all of those things are water under the bridge. And this is the first time when again, it feels like in the US, we've reached the tail end and we've really turned a corner uh, where you get struck by something and it's, there's a helplessness about it, right? Like you hear all these stories about people not able to attend funerals and people not able to you know, be there in the hospital. And all those things were true for in this situation with my uncle and his family. And it's, it's devastating, right? And it's, it's the things that you read about as if it's from a science fiction novel that suddenly come to light. And I think that's been something that's truly difficult to grapple with because, 
your mind is going in so many different directions. You want your own freedom of movement. And meanwhile, it's almost like a very stark reminder of you know, what a lot of the world is still going through um, and how that can be to those individual families. So anyway, I appreciate you letting me jump on the soapbox here, but I think there's just a swirling uh, number of emotions and thoughts uh, over the last week. And um, of course, why we didn't record, we took a bit of a pause. So I appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, any, any, what, what do you think about all of that? And I guess, you know, what would you say? Yeah. Well, first of all, hearts out to your, you and your family. I know Thank it's, um, I remember your uncle from your wedding and it clearly it was apparent to me that he was an important person in your life. And, and I know, you know, just by talking to you, how important he was. And so yeah. it, and, and you're right about, you know, you don't know the hardest part is you don't have a timetable on, oh, when will you kind of get over it? Or when will it stop gnawing at you or kind of pop up in your mind every day? And, um, but and, and the whole thing with, with, with COVID has been, you know, my family's also been affected by it, you know, back in India and mm-hmm. it, that dichotomy that you mentioned around, it's getting better here. And all of a sudden we're going out and we're, you know, hanging out with our friends again and things are coming back to normal. But then you look at India and it's the opposite direction. And I think one of the things you mentioned too, is that we're in our early thirties, right? And we're in a good situation in terms of we have stable jobs. Yeah we haven't been impacted too much, but we're also at that stage where our parents are entering kind of, you know, their fifties, sixties. And it's the first time, like, at least for me, like when you think about when COVID hit, it was the first instinct was, are my parents going to be okay? Yep. Cause we know that it was affecting older people disproportionately. And I don't think, you know, earlier in my life, I've ever thought like that, or a lot of us have thought like that. Right. And so um, it's kind of like this past year is the first time we start thinking about, really uh our family and our parents and then the fact that you know people are getting older and people this is a very dangerous disease whether or not we have been personally affected by it um and it really hits home when someone you know someone uh who you're very close to uh is affected by it so it's it's been a tough year man and it's and the sad thing is you know it feels like everything was getting better but for all of us who have family in india or you know anyone who has family still being affected by covid because you know, even though it's getting much better, there are still cases, there are still deaths, you know, around the world. Um, it, it's such and a, it, it's a tough time. So it's, it's, it's sad that even though things feel like they're getting better, we're still not kind of there just yet. Yeah. And it's so disarming, right? Like I was watching the, and we're, we're going to talk basketball, so don't worry everyone, but you know, we were, I was just <laughs> watching the Knicks Hawks game, right? And you know, Madison Square Garden is going bananas and it's like 90% plus capacity and they're all vaccinated or something like that so it's like a very safe environment but it's almost hard to even understand what that means to see a crowd of that size like it's like the ptsd that everyone has from like the way we've been conditioned over the last year it's hard to break out of that and as much as to your point it's like okay we're ready to move forward clearly in the u.s in a lot of ways though there are still thousands of cases hundreds of deaths but you know that's i guess the tolerance of risk that we've accepted that's fine but then having that direct relationship with so many who are not in that position um, is really weird. And, and, and dude, it, it should be noted, like even countries that have had decent vaccination rollouts, if they're not using effective ones, things are still kind of haywire, right? Like these variants are not 
you know, these vaccines are not being resistant to, to some of the variants that have developed. Actually, if, if you look at Pfizer and Moderna, like they're very, very clearly in the lead and Johnson Johnson in terms of how much better they are, but these other countries don't have access to some of these, right? So it's kind of a helplessness you must feel if, you, if you're there where you're like, okay, I can finally get access to this vaccine. But at the same time, I don't even know that it's going to do what it's intended to do. Um, and I thought you brought up a good point, which is, oh, it's old people. They'll, you know, I don't know any. And it's like, oh, wait, our parents are now in that demographic, right? Where we do have to yep. protect them and we do have to care for them and make sure they're being ultra cautious. And yeah, I think uh, it's a fair point. Well, once again, hope you and the family are doing okay. Uh, I know it's a hard time, but, you know, things will pass. Things will get better. Um and so, yeah, I appreciate that, man. Hey, basketball, playoff basketball has always been a nice reprieve for me at whatever point I am in life. And it was definitely helpful uh, this past week. So thank you so much. And when we come back, we'll get into all eight series that are ongoing. Okay, so the way we'll do this is so we have eight series that are now all two games in right Utah and Memphis are playing game two as of now but it looks like Utah is going to coast uh, to a victory there. So let's chalk that up to a 1-1 series tie. So you get first pick. Which series do you want to talk about um, to start? And then we'll bounce it around the league. Why don't we start with Clippers-Mavs? Because that, I think, so far has had the most surprising result. This is... <laughs> okay, <laughs> what code... Is this code red yet, or are we a code orange for the Clippers? According to Paul George, it's there's no time to panic. They're all good. They're you know there's no concern. So I don't know. I don't know what code they're on, but it's uh, it's got to be red, right? It's got to be red going down 0-2 going into Dallas. I don't know that I trust his designation of these things because he was giving the same speech after they got eliminated by Denver last year. So <laughs> I'm not sure he's the right guy to to be doing this assessment. Even Ty Lue, who I mean, what else was he going to say? They got their ass kicked twice at home. He's like, well, now that Dallas has to go back to their place and do the same thing. It's like, well, actually, that's a good thing for them if they're going to go play in their home stadium after beating you twice in L.A. So this is a mess, man. I mean, you look at the raw numbers and George and Kawhi are playing well. Uh, combined, they're averaging you know 59 a game over these two games, uh, 17 rebounds, 10 assists. Like the numbers are there. They have no chemistry. They have... <laughs> no good players outside of those two. And for all the talk about how good defensively they were going to be, they just have no clue what they should do with Luka Doncic. And so I'm not saying that this is nail in the coffin done. It definitely feels likely at this point. But they need to start with who who are they trying to be on a night-to-night -night basis. And I think they're still trying to saunter around like the playoffs are coming or that the meaningful games are coming. It's like, no, guys, like this is the one. Like this is the stuff that you did all that load management for. Like this is when you got to wake up and it just hasn't happened yet. And the thing I don't get is that there's, there's this excuse or this narrative that's there that's, oh, you know, these guys just haven't had enough time to gel. They still haven't built chemistry. But why? At, at this point, why? Like that, fine. That's an excuse in the bubble. I don't understand why this team still hasn't figured things out. And I think the blame is spread across the entire team. I think Paul George is to blame. I think Kawhi is to blame because as good as they've been playing, Paul George has not been aggressive enough. He's settling too much for outside jumpers. 
Kawhi has kind of faded down the stretch a little bit in some of these games. And defensively, um, you know, I blame some of that on Ty Lue and some of the schemes they're running and the way they're constantly switching everything and letting Luka just pick his his matchups and and hunt Pat Bev and and even Zubach earlier in the game and, and kind of go one-on-one at these guys. And I think at some point the, the blame falls on the coach because I don't know what they're doing schematically, but they're not taking advantage of Paul George and Kawhi's defensive skill sets whatsoever. And so I, I think there's a lot to blame in LA. And, and at the end of the day, the, their supporting cast we're starting to see has a lot of flaws. And, you know, Reggie Jackson, Rondo, uh, you know, Ibaka surprisingly is not getting that many minutes. Although he's actually yeah, I don't been know one why of their he's bigs. not playing because before he got hurt, they were looking great with him at the starting center and Zubac as a backup. So I don't know what the problem is if it's conditioning or something else. I don't know either, but but I think ultimately the the crazy thing about the Clippers right now is that nothing is is working. Um, and look, uh, Paul, yes, they they have been in close games, and Paul George and Kawhi have played well. But if they, those guys are playing well, they should not be down 0-2 after two home games against this Mavericks team. There's just no excuse. Yeah, I mean, look, the offense is not the problem, right? They're scoring in bunches. Offensive rating right now is 122.8. Dallas, through two games, has an offensive rating of 131.6. So for uh, reference, this would beat the all-time ever number by like 10 points almost. So that's how good they've been offensively, which means even despite the Clippers – issues with playmaking and getting into their offense, even despite their over-reliance on jump shots and settling for mid-range or threes versus attacking the glass and getting to the free throw line, they're still scoring at a pretty good clip. Now, you could argue those two reasons are actually why they have horrendous late-game offense and have really stalled out there. But for the most part, they're able to score. The issue, I think, is mainly defensively. I don't know what they're doing. And like like you said, Luka is picking them apart. He's been guarded by basically like their whole roster at this point and has scored on everyone, including, you know, vaunted two-time defensive player of the year, Kawhi, who hasn't shown that version in almost three, four years. Like, I guess there's things that they can change, but I don't know how they guard him because he did this to them last year and they just didn't have Porzingis. They didn't have, you know, this version of Tim Hardaway and it was a little bit worse team. So they snuck out in six. Given that they've already spotted them two games, like, do you really think they're going to be able to beat Luka Doncic four out of five times? I mean, I think they're going to win some games because Dallas is not going to, like, besides Luka, the entire team, as you mentioned, is just on fire uh, from from outside. And at some point, that you know, that's going to regress a little bit. The thing I don't understand what they're doing defensively is, uh, Luke, you know, the Mavericks are running these screens just to get Luka that mismatch, right? So they're not running a a pick and roll. They're not running any pick and pop action. It's literally just screen. And then the screener just rolls back out to the outside and gets Luca that ISO. And the Clippers don't even try fighting over some of those screens. Like you think late game, let's make some adjustments. Let's at least try to fight through those and stick with Luca. They just openly switch and say, okay, let him have his matchup. And then Luca kind of isolates and then just drives Beverly to the rim. And he did that a couple times late in the fourth. And so I think Ty Lue, I don't know what what scheme, he's not making any adjustments. And whatever they're doing right now, I know like the the danger of trapping Luka or sending two guys at him. He's going to find the open man. He's kind of like LeBron in that sense. Yep. But you can't let him just go yeah. one-on-one against your smaller guards. Like, I, that is not the answer. This reminds me of those LeBron 
you know, Cavs Warriors series where he would hunt Steph in the pick and roll and they would immediately relent. And no. they had a little bit more kind of like fortification if Steph got beat. But I'm like, why are you openly giving up that <laughs> matchup? It ha- actually happened a lot in the 16 finals, the one that the Warriors lost. And he would just keep switching and keep drawing Steph and then back him down and then, you know, run the, run the, run the board. And it's the same thing. I'm like, guys, Beverly is going to get put into the torture chamber and it keeps happening over and over again. So try to fight through the pick, do something like I know positionless basketball, switch everything, all that stuff. It's proven or at least thought to be a better option, but okay. In this series, maybe it's not the better option. So decide what you want to do to your point about the shooting from the Mavericks. Looking at it now, they've hit 35 of 73. So that's 50% from three (laughs) through two games to give you some context. You remember how Milwaukee blew the doors off Miami yesterday or two days ago, they only hit like 43% of threes. So that was in one game. This is Dallas over two. We know the shooting is going to slow down. Maybe, um, you know, the Clippers shooting is going to pick up. Like Paul George is three of 15 from three. Uh, Marcus Morse is two of 11. Reggie Jackson's three of 11. So maybe that normalizes a bit. But, you know, it's not like these games have necessarily been wire to wire close, right? Like Mavericks had a comfortable lead in the fourth quarter of both games. Uh, And when I say fourth quarter, I mean last like two, three minutes, they were up double digits. And so... I don't know, man. Like, you remember we were talking about the Mavericks being like, this year's Miami Heat, and could they make a run? Yep. And I think we actually spoke about it before they drew this matchup. We thought they were maybe going to get the Nuggets, because uh, that's how it was slated at the time, right, before uh, Clippers lost. And I don't think we would have said that if they were playing the Clippers. Um, and the fact that they're doing this to a team that drew them out and essentially said, yeah, we want Luka is, is pretty amazing. Um, the other quick thing I'd add you talked about the the lack of continuity and how they still look a little disoriented. What's really weird if you look at the last two playoffs versus last two regular seasons is when they've played together, Paul George and Kawhi during the regular season, they're awesome. Um, they're unstoppable. So I don't I don't understand. I I don't get it either. Um, and but I you know the other thing I, I want to talk about the last thing in the series is. Luca is becoming uh, really evolving into into LeBron light, uh, and and look, the LeBron comps have always been there with Luca, yeah. but it's becoming more apparent this series. The way he's hunting those mismatches, the way he's barking on the floor, um, you know, kind of similar to you know LeBron going, you know, too strong, you can't guard me, whatever. And and, uh, and complaining. complaining, yes, thank you. Down to the complaining, right? And I think he's. We've already seen a lot of like how similar he is, but I'm starting to see it more and more, and how he's kind of carrying this team and the same defensive challenges he uh, creates, like you mentioned with the, what happened in the Warriors where they just had to keep switching and they were afraid to send another guy at him because he's just going to zip a pass to the corner. And it's the same thing that teams are facing with Luka. And so, I'm, I, you know, the reason I bring this up is because as LeBron is kind of entering that last phase of his career, you know, maybe it's time to hitch my uh, wagon oh, to Luka. Stop. Oh, my God. You can't – hey, get away from me. <laughs> this is my guy. Your guy is Bagley. He should have been my Your guy. Is he, should, like, he's, he should have been the Kings. I still like squint and pretend he's wearing a Sacramento Kings jersey um, whenever I watch him play. Okay, he should have been ours. So don't talk about being your so guy. So one of my buddies is uh, he's from the Balkan region. He was saying the real reason the Kings didn't take uh, Luca was because Vladi had issues with Luca's dad over some like Yugoslavia type stuff. 
Yeah, there there were that there was that story, but uh, I I don't think that's really the. the I mean, case. there's dude, no there's some deep seated resentment from that region for all the you know Cold War kind of stuff going back. So if that was a real reason, that would be they, insane. But they met him. They met him overseas for dinner. Like, why so, would they so do be that? Like, thing? hey, we're taking Marvin Bagley from Duke. Tell them <laughs> that in person. No, I mean they're doing their normal due diligence. So I don't know. By the way, I'm looking at these numbers. I know it's only two games, so it's like none of these numbers make sense. But Kawhi has an offensive rating of 140. So every time he's out there, they're money. I never want to hear about Kawhi again, man. It's bad. Kawhi, yeah, I, look, it's for, bad. For, for what he's doing on the court, he's been playing amazing. I'm not going to fault him for that. But at some point, man, if you're that good of a player, why is the team not kind of following your lead? I don't care if he's a silent guy and not the vocal leader and i know in the raptors everyone said kyle lowry was that guy i don't care man if you're this good you have to have some accountability as a leader i agree and i've been telling you why do we put the clippers on this pedestal how many times have i said that why do we put them on this pedestal with the lakers because people like you were calling Kawhi the best player in the game and putting him up there with jordan just a year ago so that's it's your fault he is What's the opposite of silencing the doubters? Because he's doing that. Um, <laughs> I think, look, if you're really this good, if you're LeBron level, LeBron would not be down 0-2 in this series. That, that much I'll say. Exactly. KD would not be down 0-2 in this series, I don't think. Um, they would figure out a way. Even Giannis wouldn't be. Um, and I think, I think like, Kawhi gets a pass because he's quiet or I don't know why. I guess because he... This is your this is your argument, so I'm I'm not I'm gonna give you proper credit. I'm footnoting <laughs> it, but goddamn, those finals MVPs are kind of <laughs> almost artificial in a way, uh, because especially that 19 one, man, the shot versus Philly, and then the uh, the blown two zero lead by the Bucks, and then Clay and K- I mean, it's just like one of those things would be a fortunate title run to have all three happen in back to back to back series is just crazy. Yeah. All right. What's your second series? Oh, did you pick the? Oh, I'm gonna pick this one. All right, and then you you go first. All right. So I want to talk. Let's see. Give me Portland, Denver. Ugh. I know you don't like this one, but I want to talk about that one. All right. You go ahead. No, you first. Start off. Right. You you want me to go? Okay, uh, let me first say something. I'm not even going to talk about the actual basketball. This is the one series I'm the least interested in out of every yeah, single series that? that's going on now, except for Wizards Sixers, which is that's not happening. That's not actually happening. Like Wizards <laughs> and Sixers aren't playing right now. I don't know what you're talking about. The most interesting thing that's happened in that series is the popcorn on Westbrook's head. But that was um, really bad, dude. That's fucked up. That was bad. That's some bullshit. <laughs> that guy was blatantly just shaking the popcorn bag. Westbrook was about to kill him. For those who have not seen that, check out. Uh, it just happened like tonight. Yeah. Um, here's my problem with Denver Portland. Right. I think every series <clears throat> has some kind of <clears throat> excuse me some kind of consequence to the actual NBA title. Um, the only other one that doesn't is Atlanta and New York because there the, none of those teams are going to win. But that is one of the most fun series just because of the Knicks back in the playoffs. Madison Square Garden's rocking. Yep. Like it's just it's so much fun to watch those games. But if you think about Philly, the Philly series, well, Philly's a title contender. Brook, uh Milwaukee's a title contender. Brooklyn's a title contender. And then when you go out west, you have 
Memphis already is up a game on Utah. They're going to lose tonight, but still 1-1 going back to Memphis. Phoenix and LA tied. Uh, and then obviously the Clippers and Mavs is, is a juicy series because the Clippers are down 2-0. The only one that literally is inconsequential and not e- does not even matter is this Denver and Portland. And because, let me explain, right? If Denver wins, Denver is a good enough team. Jokic has had an MVP season. They've been playing pretty well without Murray. And so it's not crazy to, to see them winning. I had them winning. I think you had them winning before the series started. If Portland wins, we always we all know Jamal Murray is out. Dame is going to do a victory lap for winning another first-round series, okay? He doesn't get enough respect, and he's going to be chirping to the media. And then they're going to get stomped <laughs> against either Phoenix or L.A. So they are going to get I just can't get excited about the series when every other series has a team that actually matters. I think it's an ode to being in this series for these two mountain division teams for playing irrelevant basketball when they've been doing it for so many years at like 10 p.m. on Friday night when nobody's watching because this is when these games always happen. Here's the reason why it matters. We cannot have another 2007 Mavericks situation where Dirk Nowitzki is the MVP and they get dumped in round one. That was more egregious because it was a 67-win team. Uh, to the eight seed Warriors, and they were fully healthy. This one, like you said, you can explain it away with no Jamal Murray, no Will Barton. You know, you're starting Facundo, Compazzo, and Austin Rivers. Remember what I told you? I was like, dude, that cannot possibly be their backcourt. I hope this is like one yeah, long con. And here we go. And they've got, they're, they're the starters. So the only reason I really want this, I'm interested in this series, is because I want Jokic to. To, to be able to justify his MVP. Because you're already starting to see people being like, how is this guy the MVP? Like, it should be Steph. It should be Embiid, blah, blah, blah. Like, maybe because it was a foregone conclusion for so long, it, like, people were forced to come up with other narratives, and this is the one that they arrived at. I also, I think, Portland is a team that if they lose round one, this is more of a longer-term interest to me, but if they lose round one, CJ's got to go. Right, because they've basically Absolutely. done everything else uh, except fire Terry Stotts and get rid of CJ and break up that backcourt. They've tried it all. They've swapped out a hundred different wings. You know, Alfred Minu, Mo Harkless. Now they got Covington, Anthony, uh, Derek Jones. You know, like it's just gone on and on. Wes Matthews, Nick Batum. They've tried a million guys. It's not working. Um, and so the last move to make is McCollum, and I think he, as much as he's a one-dimensional player in some ways is an awesome piece that would be potentially available. So I think that's of interest. And then the other thing is Michael Porter Jr. Last year in the bubble, he started to take a step this year. You know, again, he was third fiddle behind Murray. He was awesome when Murray went down, but he's kind of been a little uneven in these first two games, right? If he's going to become this max third max guy, he's got to show it to us right now, become a 25 point per game scorer. They're guarding with fucking Norman Powell, who's six foot three. So that should be barbecue chicken every single play. And so that's another thing I'm interested in. Yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting subplots. I think I think the Portland, as you mentioned, they, they actually, you could argue that this is one of Dame's best supporting casts that he's ever had. Um, got some solid depth. He's playing, you know, at a different level. Nurkic, for once, is actually on the court. Um, but, and, and, and yeah, Denver has, but I think with Denver, it's kind of, at this point, house money, knowing that Murray is out, uh, whether or not Porter has a good series, that, I mean, that matters to his future contract, but they know he's a good player. And so I, I 
yeah, it'll be nice if Jokic could win a first round series, but no one's going to hold it against him. It's not going to be like Dirk. You, you, so, you're going to Bill Simmons' big picture on me. What about like, did you watch the other night when Dame had 20 something in the th- second quarter and then Jokic, like Dame had 32 at half and Jokic had 25? What other series has two dudes who can just go off like that? So yeah, they're, they're fun couple, to watch, but we've seen. I guess every series has two of those players, but. I am in. I am enjoying watching Jokic go off, especially with with the defensive tactics Portland's employing and letting him kind of get his without uh, being the playmaker. But Lillard, man, we see this all the time. I, it's not that exciting to me. Uh, it's just. It's just not when when they're a six seed. Like I don't. I can't get behind. For, it's like I can't get behind Trey Young. Forget the big picture. Hitting eight threes in the half, anywhere you slice it, is exciting. I'm desensitized to all the three pointers and like to me that's not a like. Steph Curry is still electric to me and the way he hits some of his threes. I get desensitized to some of these guys hitting seven or eight and a half. It just, it, I don't get excited by it. As much as I'm all for Dame disrespect, you just putting him in the some of these guys category away from Steph, that is true, true level of, you know, just. Yeah, like remember when, um, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm getting uh, his night in the OKC. What's his Oku? name? Oh, Lou Dort, when he had like 40. Lou Dort, yeah. yeah. Lou Dort went for, oh, what, 42? You just put Dave yeah. and Lou Dort in the same line. <laughs> oh, my God. And I, could, I couldn't even remember Lou Dort's name. And we're not going to remember Dave's in about two weeks. Um, <laughs> I still like Denver, but it does feel like Jokic has to be Superman every night because they're not doubling him. He's only averaging three assists, which is like well, well beyond below his averages. But he's, he's putting up 36 and 12 because they're just like, hey, get yours and we're going to stay home on everyone else. That's why I think Michael Porter is so important because he shot one of 10 from three game one and they lost. And then he was a little bit better game two. And of course, that they won. So I will say this. There's a lot of angst among Denver fans towards Mike Malone. Really? Um, not not oh, sorry, not Mike. Yeah, Malone, Michael, Michael Malone. Yeah, be I, don't, I don't want him coming after me. He does um, listen to this podcast, I believe. <laughs> Who knows? They weren't happy with him last year. Uh, get with some of the decisions he made, um, but but last year they they still they ended up playing very like they almost lost in the first round, right? And I think they were very frustrated with him in that series against the Jazz. They end up beating the Clippers and then decently, you know, showing up against the Lakers. But uh, there are rumblings from Nuggets fans, and he's not going anywhere. I'm not trying to say that this is, but if if they don't win this year, and let's say next year they with a healthy team, they underperform. I don't think they're going to stick with him. I think they're going to make changes because you've. This is a talented roster. Jokic has taken that next superstar leap. Murray is clearly a very good secondary player, and you have a guy like MPJ at least for another year. The expectations for this team are going to be high next year. So I think that's another subplot. I, I don't think this year matters, but still, I, I think how he coaches the series and how they show up is still going to have an impact on his job. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder. You know, you can never predict the Murray injury, but should they have done more to keep? you know, a Jeremy Grant or a Malik Beasley, two guys who can get their own offense now that they're sort of devoid of some of that perimeter talent. But all right, what's your next series to discuss? We're way off track on how long we're going to spend on these, but that's par for the course. So what's your next one? They're only going to get shorter. Yeah, yeah. some of these at the end are going to be really bad. Uh, Suns-Lakers, I think, has to be the next one. So we just hate the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I mean, okay, we have to talk Suns-Lakers because, look, at the end of the day, 
to me, this series, what I've noticed, and with CP3 hobbled the way he is, it is looking like the Lakers should pull it out. The biggest thing I'm getting a little concerned about is LeBron's... Uh, LeBron, we knew game one, going to take it easy. It's a feel-out game. He actually has his worst performance in game... Like If you look at his records across all seven games... I think game one is his worst and game two is his highest. So he's, you can bank on him winning game two, but he'll often lose game one. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's a little worrisome is that he's a little bit more aggressive in game two, but he's still not getting to the rim. He's still uh, not backing guys down when Cam Johnson's on him or, you know, even if campaign gets switched onto him for a second, he's not taking advantage of any of these smaller guys. And I'm wondering if, I don't know if it's he's saving it for later when he needs it. Because they're kind of in a dogfight with the Suns right now. And this series could go six or seven, potentially, if Chris Paul is able to play. And then you got to go and play... Um, you did uh, play, play the, I guess, Denver-Portland winner. So that's... Denver-Portland. I mean, Denver's still not, like, you know, a terrible team. And so you're going through a quite a rigorous series. And so he might just be saving his his energy and effort, but... He hasn't looked as aggressive, and and I'm worried that this is if that ankle is bothering him a little bit too much, or he's just getting older, and and that's going to limit the Lakers' uh, possibilities of winning. So the irony is, the three best teams in the NBA outside of the Lakers are all in the Eastern Conference. So you're looking at this gauntlet, so to speak, that LeBron's going to face, and it's actually not that hard, right? It's Suns who are good, but totally unproven even before this Chris Paul injury. Now it's a totally different situation where he is going to play every night. But as you saw last night, they rode campaign game one. He was barely shooting. He like, he like kind of catapulted one into the rim. But other than that, like he's a non-factor. And I don't know how much better that's going to get. I thought it was going to be a lot better in game two. So the fact that he was struggling that much is actually pretty worrisome to me. Um, I thought it was a stinger, get some treatment, get some, you know, stim, stim treatment. And he's good to go. And, he wasn't there. So maybe, I don't know. I think they play again either tomorrow or Saturday. So I imagine that's going to be a factor the whole series. And in which case, like you said, they should advance, they being the Lakers. And suddenly you're playing a banged up Nuggets team and then a Jazz team, maybe, that again has never been there or Luka, right? And a one-man band. So I actually think the Lakers still have a pretty advantageous route to the finals, so if LeBron is easing back from the ankle injury, if he is just biding his time, he's in a great position to do so because they're going to only have to play one of those three East juggernauts, right? Maybe it's Brooklyn and they'll be underdogs, but they're favored. They'll probably be favored against Philadelphia or Milwaukee. So there's really only one team that the Lakers are not expected to beat. If though, like you said, it is actually just look, his athleticism is kind of on the decline and this ankle injury is somewhat of the tipping point, right? And now he's not taking Cam Johnson or campaign or any of these guys off the dribble. Like how many pounds advantage does he have over Mikel Bridges? But he's not able to necessarily yeah. get by him. He can at times, right? He can rev it up. Like this is this is one of the goats. So it's a concern, um, but I always expect him to be there. It's like Brady at this point. Like if you're if you're starting to write his obituary before he does, you're, you're an idiot. Um, and so... To, to me, the, the series and the, really the Lakers' chances rest on AD, who yep. 
can put out a performance like last night where he had 30, and he can also do what he did in game one. Like, this guy, as talented as he is, he's a beta, and we protect him all the time. I don't know why. Like, we give him this kid glove treatment that we don't criticize him or whatever, and because he's so talented, he's so productive at times, this is why he can never be a number one on a team because if he was, LeBron wouldn't be there to hit that big shot up 93-92. It'd have to fall on Davis's shoulders, and he's not built for that, I don't think. But he needs to provide enough like he did last year because he started doing some crazy shit defensively at the end of that game. He, he's got to keep doing that uh, consistently, and then they should be in good spot. Yeah, that's that's one of the things where the moment he started wrecking havoc defensively towards the end is when they put him at the five. And everyone's always asking, why don't they play him at the five? Why is Drummond, Drummond had a decent game yesterday? But the, the team defensively is not the same when Drummond and AD are on the floor. And... You know, I, it might be a strategic thing on Vogel's standpoint where it's like, hey, let AD, you know, playing at the four is just easier on him, on his body. Those minutes are much easier. And then the last five minutes will save this kind of AD at the five, kind of like the Warriors would have their, their death lineup that they'd use, you know, in, only in certain situations. They might be doing that or, you know, but the joke is also that AD never wants to play the five. And so it's yeah, just to placate doesn't. him. Um, yeah, and he absolutely does. Either. Either way, I think as long as they have that ace up their sleeve, like what I, it was the reason it was kind of worrisome that LA went up 13, 14 late in the second half. It looked like, oh, they're going to win this. Phoenix crawled back and they crawled back on the likes of not on CP3, but on campaign and, and Crowder and, and Booker made a couple of shots. And so um, it, like for the Lakers, it was good to see still that when things got really tight, they could go to that lineup. It was what, like Caruso, LeBron, KCP uh, Davis and Davis and I forgot the the uh, shooter maybe yeah, shooter yep or one of those guys yeah and and uh, and just they were jumping in the passing lanes getting deflections Phoenix could not score Booker was bottled up and so and then they won comfortably at the last minute so you're right maybe the Lakers are going to be fine and and all of this is kind of just. The normal part. No, they're going the through their course. little bit of growing pains. Listen, with LeBron, we don't get a lot of time to just like stand on his grave, right? Like, it's a lot of it is us celebrating the game one loss and then him just to- tooling on everyone. That's why you see so much hype and worry and like articles written about concern about the Lakers, because this is the only time anyone has to like play gotcha on LeBron. This is Skip Dallas's yeah. Super Bowl, right? And so I think more is always made of their struggles than would be any other team. That's true. That's true. And and one last thing I'll say about the series is you have to get, give credit to the Suns yeah. and just how, I mean, they haven't played their best basketball in my opinion, but they're playing hard and making things a little bit more difficult on the Lakers. And, you know, even with Chris Paul out there, but not on the floor, the campaign, man, this guy, what a career turnaround, right? From Westbrook's dance partner to out of the league somewhere in Europe to back in and, you know, making clutch plays. So I, I hats off to that. I heard a good quote that was just from him that was just like, hey, what like was the result of your turnaround or why did this happen? He's just like, I realized how hard I had to fight for my job. I don't want to lose my job anymore. And I realized that like what that required for me to put in. I thought that was really special because you don't see a lot of these types of stories from, you know, lottery flameouts who are never heard from again. Uh, and yep. he had a second stop, right? It was in Chicago. So this is actually his third NBA stop, including the international play. And you don't see that happen a lot. One thing I will say is like, look, DeAndre Ayton is shooting 87%, right? He's 21 to 24. 
Devin Booker is playing great. Uh, he's averaging almost 43 minutes a game. Beyond those two guys, though Payne has been good in his role, he's still a role player. Like, where are they going to get that offense from um, with this version of Chris? Crowder's Paul? gone cold. Crowder. Bridges has not really been doing much. And, he, and Bridges um, is a 10, 12 to 15 point per game guy anyway, peaking out. Like, he's yeah. a good defender, a good 3 and D guy. Crowder is one of 13 from three in the series. So you'd think that that would change a little bit, but at the same point, same point, he's Jay Crowder and he's not going to necessarily be counted on. Like I thought they could have won game two, but he missed a couple huge threes yeah. and good looks. It's not yeah. necessarily that you would, this isn't Joe Harris, right? Like it's kind of to be expected that he's going to be hot and cold. And that's the worrisome part. I really thought if they took game two, I thought whoever won game two was going to win the series. Um, and now we, we swing back to L.A. where, you know, there's going to be some fans. It's not going to be as crazy as Phoenix. But, you know, we'll see if LeBron says, hey, we got to win both of these. So it's basically uh, no chance for, for the Suns to get back into it. Nope. All right. All right. Next up, and I'll let well, you, yeah, I'll let you go on this one first. I wanted to talk about Milwaukee-Miami. Um, coming off of last year's, you know, this is a rematch of the bubble that basically broke the will of the Bucks. But they've rebounded really nicely now up 2-0. I mean, Milwaukee, this is obviously what we want. Well, we kind of expected to see this, but it it's good to see it. And, and kind of game one, obviously, was, was much closer than anyone anticipated. And, you know, on one hand, you had Jimmy Butler and, and Bam playing abysmally. But on the other hand, you had Milwaukee shooting really poorly from three. And it's like, okay, one of these things isn't going to continue to happen. And Milwaukee came out in that game to shot lights out, bottled up Jimmy again. And I think they've just, they've, they found an identity and Drew Holiday, I know you've been saying this all year, but like Drew Holiday really has been the perfect addition for this team and given them exactly what they needed from the defensive standpoint and just from his offensive contributions. And Holiday is one of those guys over the course of his year where he kind of waxes and wanes on offense. Some There's some games he looks incredible and there's some games he's, very passive. I think he's doing just enough shot creation to take that pressure off uh, Giannis. Middleton's playing well. And then they're getting, you know, shootings from their all their role players. Like Bryn Forbes is, is was going off in game two. And so I think this team has found a good balance. I think Bud has, has changed, which we wanted to see. He's not so adamant about his rotations. He's giving guys more minutes, playing Giannis more minutes, making a couple of adjustments here and there. Um, whereas last year he kind of ran the same formula every single game and it was easier for a team like Miami to kind of game plan against that. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead. And, and then I was going to say, and then, and then on the Miami side, I mean, this, it's hard to blame Miami. Like last year, we know this is a team that kind of uh, performed much better than anyone ever expected. And um, this team, I think is just, they don't look the same. Uh, their offense looks discombobulated defensively. They're not putting up much of resistance. They're not closing out on some of these shooters. They just don't look the same. And, and I think they've kind of, they're just a tired team. And yeah, I, I think this series is, is going to be over in four or five. Well, hold the Miami thought for a second. Cause I want to get back to them, but I think what's funny about Milwaukee is game one went exactly like last year. Like I bet you, if you were watching with a Bucks fan, they would be freaking out when Giannis was struggling yep. at the line. He was missing layups. He was shooting like, what did he shoot? Like nine of 23 or 24, like totally yep. like atypical Giannis regular season, but doing some of the same things that remind you why there's so many skeletons in the closet. Right. And 
they pulled it out, right? Like, yeah, uh, Chris Middleton hit a huge shot. And I think that I'm very curious to see what would have happened if they lost that game. Do they still rebound and blow out Miami in game two? Or do they start getting very, very tense? Um, and I think that's always going to be a concern with them throughout the postseason because this is still only round one. I know they're playing a team that went to the finals last year, but you know the Bucks have much bigger aspirations than round one. They know they're going to have to play Brooklyn next round. What's that going to look like? I don't want to jump the gun on that conversation, but getting out in round two for having Drew Holiday, Giannis, and Chris Milton, even if it's to the mighty Brooklyn Nets, is still a failure of a season. So this is just the start of the journey. It's good to see them put together uh, a couple really nice wins. Like you said, Bud is switching more. He's playing smaller lineups. Like He still rode with Brooke Lopez uh, for all of game one at crunch time, which I was surprised by. Yeah. Game two, you couldn't take anything much from because it was you know such a blowout so early. But I, I thought he would play more P.J. Tucker, who was really effective when he did play. Um, but maybe he's saving him, right? Because you know Brooklyn's going to go small a lot, and that's the perfect perfect five man in that in those lineups especially to bother someone like ad here's the question about the heat because by the time we record this next week they may be out of the playoffs for all we know (laughs) they made the finals last year and remember what the talk was like you said they overachieved they're one year ahead of schedule this is not supposed to happen these guys played way better than we thought etc etc right but where do they go from here? Because this is the year then, right? And this was the summer they were supposed to sign Giannis. And it was all supposed to crescendo towards this like super team that was going to be built. Now what you have is Jimmy Butler, who played awesome this year. He's going to make all NBA. You know, he's still performing at peak levels. I know he struggled mightily through two games. I expect him to shake it off. Then you got Bam, who's turned into somewhat of a complicated player. He is... I don't know what's wrong with him, but he won't even shoot like a 10-foot jump shot when they're giving it to him. I don't know what's happened because he was pretty decent from that range all year. You know, he's not a three-point shooter yet, but like, my God, like he's got the yips or something, right? And then you have Tyler Hero, who's not bubble hero, right? You have an aging Goran Dragic who's expiring. Oladipo was a total disaster of a trade. Uh, He's out, right, and could miss most of next season, free agent also. Let me tell you something about Duncan Robinson. As good as he is, as a guy who roots for Davis fucking Bertans to, to score zero points and get six fouls in a playoff game, it's a lot worse when your shooter makes $20 million instead of $2 million. And so when they have to pay him, suddenly that roster flexibility goes away, and what was a three-year window closes really fast. So that's my thoughts on Miami if they don't get it together either in this series. This series is done, but either in, like you know this offseason or sometime soon. This is why I was banging on the drum to get them to trade for Harden. Crazy and that they didn't. Do I don't know. I don't know whether or not it was because Tyler Hero is untouchable. I, I find that hard to believe. But it, this is classic example of when you don't pull a trigger like that, all of a sudden, and you don't do well this season, you realize your window is kind of gone. And and Bam, I don't know what's wrong with Bam because it's not even these last couple of games. Towards the end of the season, he's kind of been fading. Um, you know, the last five, ten games or so, his offense has, has fallen off a cliff a little bit. And now in the playoffs, um, and look, Milwaukee is a, is a good defensive team, but like you said, it's it's more the hesitant. He's hesitant to shoot. He's hesitant to get get that offense going, and this is a team that needs that from him because a guy like Duncan Robinson will score in the flow of a game, 
But when Jimmy Butler doesn't have it going, you have to rely on Bam to, to get something uh, going for you guys. And I think he'll end up being fine, but the the limited ceiling or if it looks like, you know, maybe he's not going to be that superstar we thought he would be, like still a star, but offensively he's not going to be at the level of an Embiid, right, or a Towns or someone like that. All of a sudden, Jimmy Butler is getting older. And like you said, they don't have a lot of – if they're forced to pay Duncan Robinson, you know, Tyler Hero is an okay player. Oladipo is nothing anymore. You don't have a lot of assets on that roster. What is the plan? And I, they'll figure it out. You know, Pat Riley always retools, and, and they'll swap out veterans for other veterans, and they'll be competitive. But they really missed a, a huge opportunity because you're right. Their window – they really did kind of have a small window. And so as much as we talk about them overachieving last year, this was really their chance to be um, a much better team, and they haven't really made that leap. Yeah, especially after Giannis signed that Supermax, where it was done before the season, right? So they could have easily made the Harden trade. No, And we talked about this, knowing that Harden, uh, sorry, Giannis wasn't coming. If you remember, even our over-unders, we, we were having this conversation. We're like, this is a destination. I think you had him at Miami. I thought he was going to Philly. He ends up in Brooklyn, yep. right? And so, though I, maybe I thought I was going to stay, and so I took the Houston over, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, so I think the reality is, like, yeah, I, I, I guess Bam could turn into a totally different offensive player, but what's the likelihood of that, right? Or maybe they do push their chips into the middle with the Hero Robinson guys, but those dudes aren't as valuable that, as they were a year ago, Yeah. right? Now you have to pay Robinson. Now Hero's been exposed. I, I listened to a podcast the other week, the other day, excuse me, that talked about why is he struggling? It's like they got tape on him now, and he hasn't figured out how to go to his secondary move. Um, you know, he does that little dribble drive pull-up thing, and that's not working anymore. They see it coming. And so, you know, there's there's actually rumors about how hard of a worker he is and, like, what his his lifestyle been like living in Miami. Enjoying that Miami yeah, lifestyle. exactly. So – you know, we'll see. Maybe they go get a buyout guy like a John Wall or something like that, or maybe they're able to sign Kyle Lowry, you know, like something like around the fridges, but they don't have the flexibility yeah. like they did just, you know, six months ago. So, no. Um, last thing on Drew coming back to Milwaukee. I agree with you that I think we, everybody loves Drew maybe a little too much. Part of that is because he's such a good dude. Um, he is up and down, especially offensively, and he's a little up and down defensively, but nobody's willing to say that either. <laughs> if he can figure out a way to lock in on Kyrie or Harden, you know, whichever one they choose to, to put him on, that can really swing the series. What type of defense he's able to play on those guys, I think will dictate a lot. Uh, because Durant's going to be Durant. Durant's unguardable. They'll make him work, but it's really going to be if he can get Kyrie to have a bad series. I think that changes things a little bit next round, but we'll, we'll wait to talk about that. It does. And Middleton's no slouch defensively, right? No. So all of a sudden now you've got a pretty formidable, you know, in terms of when the guys get switched, you have a lot of pieces on defense that'll allow you to counter yeah. what Brooklyn's going to do. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of hunting, you know, I don't know if you put Bryn Forbes out there or, or uh, no, you can't, you can't put a guy like, like he's not going to get, get many minutes. I don't know who that fifth yeah. guy is. Um, Okay, cool. What's next? This is your pick. We're getting to the dark stages of, of the playoff series. We haven't talked Knicks, uh, Knicks Hawks. We haven't. I'm going to go Knicks Hawks. All right. Um, this is this is a fun series. I think what's been fun about it, uh, first of all, it's just Madison Square Garden. 
And this is the first series that feels like the old playoff games. Mm-hmm. Because I know we've had fans in all the other buildings, but it's not the same level of... Phoenix was pretty good. Utah's pretty good. Like These states are a little bit more relaxed with their um, uh, rules. But man, New York and the chants. And today they were chanting uh, about Trey Baldwin. Yeah. And just... And what I love is, hey, look, I hate Trey Young. I, that's well documented on this pod. But what I love about Trey Young is he's not afraid to talk back. He's embracing it. Obviously, they won the game one, and so he was able to talk. But even today, he was chirping back at the the Knicks fans, see you in the A. Um, and so this series has, you know, it's inconsequential. But I think both teams are are fun in their own way. Atlanta is clearly coming into their own with a lot of their young players. Trey Young is coming into his own as a, as a star. Um, taking on that challenge like you don't see you know the Clippers are, this is a good example right the Clippers are front runners they chirp when they're up totally. but the moment when things get tough you don't you don't hear from them right but Trey Young is, is still willing to step up and talk so I like that swagger that bravado of this team they've got a lot of pieces moving forward that are very promising and then for the Knicks you know this is also a great story for so many reasons outside of Julius Randle Randle hasn't been having a great series but Derrick Rose today went off um, you know, Alec Burks had that wild fourth quarter last game. You're you're getting all these contributions from these kind of lunch pail type players. Reggie Bullock hit a couple big time threes. And so it's just it's a fun series in which two teams that are kind of scrappy, relatively young. Um and I don't know, man, it's just been entertaining basketball. And and because New York's pretty good defensively, it's it's been fun watching that offensive defensive matchup where Atlanta's more of an offensive team. So yeah, so the first thing I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I I totally agree with the Trey being kind of very open to being the villain is awesome, right? There's a lot of guys who just want to be loved, and he really understands. He's been criticized since his the day he walked into Oklahoma's campus, right? And the way he played, the thirty footers, never passing to his teammates, or it was like Trey and the four just like puppets, right? That was who was on the court when he played at OU. That looked like who was on the court his first two years in Atlanta. So now you see him with competent basketball players around him, and you really understand what his game can unlock. And it's been fun to watch him develop, right, and turning from like, you know, what was described as a losing player to a guy who's actually able to carry a winning team. I think that we need more villains like him, though, because we need a guy who's willing to stand up to New York, like the next great New York villain and the lineage of the Michael Jordans and Reggie Millers and all these guys. Um, I think the piece about New York with the MSG situation, I think what's really funny is think about like Julius Randall, uh, RJ Barrett, Reggie Bullock, Alec Burks. None of them have played meaning bas- meaningful basketball in their careers. Right. And none of them have done it in New York. So when you combine the two, it's actually quite funny because in a way, the home crowd almost psyched the home team out because yeah. like these guys were like, oh my God, I don't remember what this feels like. And I think you probably see that around the league where it's like your, your fans are cheering for you, but you're just kind of freaked out. You've been playing in empty stadiums and you played in the bubble and you did all this other stuff. And like, yes, if you want to compare it to other full stadiums, Phoenix is in the conversation, but their fans are nowhere near what the Knicks fans are, right, in yeah. terms of passion. Utah's up there, but Utah's a perennial playoff team. This is eight years in the making, plus a pandemic, which, you know, disproportionately ravaged New York City. Um, and so you feel like a lot of emotion. Obviously, you're not going to get something similar to the Nets games, but 
feel a lot of emotion and it's like almost overwhelming to watch on TV. So I can't even imagine what those players are feeling when like, I think I saw a tweet that's like, I wonder if Kevin Durant, Kyrie and Harden know that Derek Rose is more popular than all three of them combined in the city of New York. <laughs> and that's what it's like. Um, so, and then to your point about the defense, like just schematically, like they were down 15 and it really could have been over uh, Two zero headed back to Atlanta. You're looking at a Clippers, uh, Mav situation, right? Where you go up, go home up 2 0, it's a wrap. Um, and they yeah. really clawed back, got some big stops. I thought they had great minutes with Randall on the bench, you know, with Toppin playing well. Uh, Alec Burks, like yeah. you said, a couple of the bench guys who looked good. And Rose played the most minutes he's ever played since December of 2018 tonight. Yeah. So, what does he have in the tank? I'm not sure, but I think you would agree this is their championship. They're going to get wiped yeah, by Philadelphia. You empty the clip. Yeah. Both teams are going to get wiped by Philadelphia. All you're trying to do is win this win this round, and that's been a really successful season if that's the case. I've always had a soft spot for the Knicks because, like I told you before, um, when the Kings almost moved to Seattle, I was considering making the, the Knicks my new favorite team. Good I didn't because I'd still endure the same kind of heartbreak. I mean, now they're actually in the playoffs and the Kings aren't. But that but- never made sense to me because – you're not from Sacramento anyway, so they could be located in on the fucking moon and it wouldn't have mattered. Like, what's like you don't have to switch teams just because they moved a couple hours further. Yeah, so I wasn't one hundred percent sure about switching teams, but it, there's just a lot of all the fans, everyone around the team disassociates themselves from it, so it feels weird still supporting them when they feel a completely new franchise. You know? Yeah. Well, so, the real question is, what would you have done when they moved to Virginia Beach? That was originally rumored at one point. I know that. Oh my God. I didn't even know. I didn't even know Virginia, like I didn't even know Virginia beach was a thing. I didn't even know. Like a lot of people wouldn't realize this because of the name, but it's actually the most populous city in Virginia. In terms of I had no idea. people, it's got like 600 some thousand people in terms of just city, not a uh, metropolitan area. It's bigger than like Miami. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know about Virginia Beach. I was like, Beach? What? Virginia? What? Yeah, but, it's weird. Um, um, but yeah, so so I think with the Knicks, you got a soft spot. I, I do too. I mean, everyone, now it's overplayed how much the NBA needs the Knicks. Like, we get it. But <laughs> it is a lot more fun uh, when games there matter. Yeah, because they're one of those big market teams where it's not like the Lakers or the they've never been known for flashy superstars. They've always been known for kind of these um, physical, like you talk about Starks and um, Ewing and all these guys, right? And um, never about flash and finesse and pizzazz. And so they're kind of returning to their roots with this physical style of play, which is fun to see. Yep, yep. Um, okay, so to wrap it up, we have the two one eight series left. Uh, which one do you want to go to first? No, we have uh, Brooklyn Celtics. Oh too. wow, those, that is also the third one eight series. Uh, those yeah, are all wraps, but I guess let's go Memphis Utah because this isn't a wrap, right? It's one one. In my mind, this yeah, I mean be, it's a four one win. Um, I don't think Memphis got their one win. It felt a lot like Toronto Orlando from two twenty nineteen, uh, where they stole that one game. You know, got everyone kind of up in arms and. Especially with Mitchell back, I just don't see Memphis generating enough offense, um, you know, to be able to hold up against Utah. Utah's not going to shoot as poorly as they did in in game one. And look, like they went 10 of 43, and this is one of the downsides for their championship run, which is 
how reliant they are on three-point shooting. I don't think it's going to matter in this series. I think this is going to be over, you know, in five games. The question, you know, is really what's going on with Donovan Mitchell in terms of his relationship with the team, and is it all water under the bridge once they get through this series with ease? Do you disagree? So first of all, it's a five-point game now. It's a five-point game. Oh, my God. It's actually Um, a three-point game now. Wow, three point game. So they've come storming back. So can who knows? Erase, we'll see what happens. Can you this erase game. that entirety of that? <laughs> um. So, yeah, I still think Utah's going to pull this out. It'll be interesting to watch. The, we'll probably get to watch the last uh, minutes of these, this game. Yeah. I, I think the story, like you said, Donovan Mitchell. This is a weird, weird story, and I don't know. I still don't understand what exactly is going on and how it's been reported because. We understand that he thought he was ready to play. His kind of personal training staff said he was good to go, and the team held him back at the last minute. The part I don't understand is how his teammates were chiming in, how they were taken off guard, and it seemed like people were offended by the way this played out. And it reminds me of Kawhi a little bit in San Antonio, where we didn't really know what was happening, and some people were saying it's fine, don't like read too much into it. You know, it's just his his people versus their people, all that stuff, but. Under the surface, there's a lot more brewing. And it'll be interesting if Utah, you know, flames out in the second round, let's say, right, which is possible to Dallas, um, maybe the Clippers if they get it together. I don't know if a story like this is going to surface again and there's going to be more friction and tension and Mitchell leaves. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal right now, but I've seen these things where the, where there's smoke, there's fire. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, so the one thing I'd say is it, it's almost like the inverse of the Kawhi situation where he was swearing his quad injury was bigger than the team doctors were like assessing it to be. And they wanted him to come back. Whereas in this situation, a- Mitchell thought his ankle was clear. He had practiced with the team. He wasn't even on the injury report on Sunday. So it's still unclear why he was held out. Uh, his teammates didn't know. Obviously, he didn't know himself. I think... Look, he just signed a five-year max like this offseason. It hasn't even kicked in yet. So in terms of leaving, I would have a hard time believing that they would move him. He's the franchise cornerstone. He's everything they wanted him to be. And the fact that they got him at the pick they did is like, you know, once in a million time chance. I just don't think they're going to fix this. They fixed the COVID situation with him and Rudy Gobert. Maybe you could say, hey, look, this is another notch on the belt. That was already serious. How many fires can you put out with one guy? He's had some issues with the fans there. You know, let's just call it what it is. Utah is not necessarily totally aligned with Donovan Mitchell's politics. Um, He was very outspoken about the Breonna Taylor situation and some of these others. And I know that some fans did not take too kindly to that. Um, And that created friction. So I don't know what to say other than no star has gotten out of his deal with this much this many years left unless the team wanted to move him and i don't see them wanting to move mitchell so they'll figure it out at least for one more season um and then maybe we're having this conversation the the one thing that i think is just generally weird though is why was he not on the injury report if there was a chance he couldn't play and that's what hasn't really been answered yet and is it just that they thought they'd roll over memphis and so it didn't matter or something more. But what was that report about his teammates? What was that? Um, I report? forgot who. It was about Bogdanovich or some other, and someone else. How they were kind of the way it was phrased was they were kind of shocked that he he didn't come and play, and it seemed like 
I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seemed like there was some kind of disappointment or weird reaction from the teammates around the whole situation. Now, I don't know if they're blaming Donovan Mitchell, but this whole situation was a little weird. The reason I brought up the Kawhi one, I know it's kind of the inverse of that. It's just that these things with these me- medical issues are very, very personal, very sensitive to these athletes. And you're right. Mitchell has a five-year contract. There's He's not getting moved. He's not getting traded anytime soon. But it's just, you know, a lot of weird incidents have kind of been happening in Utah. I would not be surprised if he's unhappy. And maybe he has to move Gobert or maybe there's some other demands he has. I don't know. Um, I'm just wondering if it'll cause issues down the line. Maybe not, but it's this story is kind of weird to me. And maybe it's not that big of a deal. It's just whatever. They disagreed. He's going to play the rest of the series. But it was reported in a very different way. Yeah, so. if he does ask to move Gobert, I would be very curious uh, because he is probably a one of the most polarizing players in the league in terms of his impact. Like John Hollinger put him number two on his MVP ballot and actually voted him first team all NBA. Um, so, you know, I'm curious to see what that would yield. But nonetheless, talking about the series, remember when we were chatting about with uh, Arash and Ashka and we talked about who were the best young cores? And I think we went round robin. Um, yep. And so I ended up with Memphis. And... Probably not who I would pick if I had my you know pick of the litter, but it was more like okay, I think this is this is a group that has a lot of talent, and you do look at it, and it's you're still wondering if they have that tier one superstar, um, if Ja can really become like a top ten guy one day. I don't know that he can. Um, I think he can become a perennial all star, but there is a gap right between hey, I'm in the all star game every year, and hey, I can carry a team deep into the playoffs. Jaron Jackson uh, has not looked great, but maybe that's something he can step into. Probably not. But they have so much quality across the board. Uh, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks. Yeah, like even Grayson Allen's played well. Valanchus has been awesome. And so I really wonder how this team progresses in the next couple of years because they they're not going to go away. And you saw that against Golden State, right, beating like the world's darling Steph. And you saw that in game one versus, versus Utah. And you're seeing it tonight. So this is a scrappy team. They're well coached. I really just wonder, you know, what is the thing that they're going to do to help them make that ascension? I mean, the challenge is exactly what you brought up. They don't have – John Morant is an amazing player. The problem with guys like John Morant is he's it's, – it's like guys like Wall, guys like Westbrook even, where even if they might be just amazing players, they're not going to be considered top five, top 10 in terms of the way they impact the team or carry you totally. just from the Wall position is they the play. Comp I was thinking Un- unless you're Steph Curry, who, you know, if you're at the point guard position, but you're a game breaker, yep. right? Um, and he's not that. So the hope was Jaron Jackson. I think Memphis fans, I think a lot of people around the league thought Jaron Jackson could evolve. He has all the tools. I know he's been de- he's dealt with a lot of injuries. He's still a good player, but I'm not sure if he may have that ceiling. Uh, that we originally thought he potentially could. And then a problem when you, when you have six, seven guys across the roster that are pretty young, that are all good, you can't afford to pay all of them. At some point you got to pay the Piper. Um, you know, Dylan Brooks is going to get a fat contract or uh, Grayson Allen might command a lot of money. Right. And so you can't rely on the strategy of, Oh, we've got seven guys we like, let's run it back every year. Um, and that's where the not having a, a star star, if assuming Morant and, Jackson don't take some monumental leap, it's going to hurt them. And so it's kind of the situation where it's nice that they have all these pieces, but they're going to still have to make some big moves if they really want to become a bona fide contender. Like when they become a contender, 
if they do, their team is not going to look like this. I can tell you that. It's kind of like Miami uh, before they got Butler. They had all of these guys on like 10 to $12 million contracts because they kind of didn't know who their team, who their good players were. And so everyone got yeah. a contract in that range. And, and Morant is going to be a max guy, if nothing else, just because of his stardom and fame and the way he's you know loved by Memphis. Jaron Jackson, you know, He's actually due an extension this summer. He's in the class of 18 with Luca and Trey. I would be surprised if they gave him an extension versus letting him play out that fourth year to see what he develops like, especially with the full season of health. So maybe he becomes that guy. I mean, like you said, his numbers his first two years and at the ascension look good, but you watch him and there's a lack of aggressiveness in a way and a lack of like being able to grab the game, uh, you know, by the throw and be able to really take control. Um, You know, he's young, he's 21. He could develop that. We don't know this. Uh, So that's going to be sort of what they hang their hat on. You know, I think if those two guys are not the star and now they're suddenly too good to be picking at the top of the lottery again, this is what, is kind of sad about early development is you end up putting yourself in mediocrity unless there's a big leap. It happened with the Wizards where Beal and Wall got pretty good, but neither of them can be the number one on a contender. But then they were good enough where they were like, okay, we're four through eight every year. And so we're just literally, you know, picking out of a hat for who might be a good player in the draft. And you end up with Troy Brown. You end up with traded picks because they're not worth it or whatever else. You end up with uh, Kelly Oubre. And so that's the only concern for Memphis. Like, it does feel a lot like those early Washington teams. And it's harder in the West. Like, those Washington teams also were in a weaker East. So they could, you know, they could climb up to that four or five spot even. Yep. Memphis is not going to be able to do that. But, you know, let's not douse water on what Memphis is doing right now because uh, I think – with teams like Memphis, and now they're down twelve, so maybe this game is, you know, not not going to happen. The biggest thing is getting confidence early on. They had the, the Warriors win for them. I think was great, even though it's a single game play in, put them on the map, gave them confidence. So even if they get waxed by Utah, I think they're feeling pretty good about themselves, feeling good about Ja, yeah, what he can do on the big stage. Yeah, um, I stand corrected. So they they're will be a fun team waxed. to watch moving forward. They're not getting waxed. They they are fighters. So maybe this is going yep. a totally different direction than than I'm thinking. Um, and I think to your point about the plan, like they lost last year's plan to another star point guard who went crazy, right? Like they lost oh, to yeah, Portland. True. So I think being able to battle back from that in a game nobody expected them to win in Golden State was 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 a lot of fun. And I think it spoiled a lot of people's. Uh, view on the playing tournament after the LeBron Steph game we got on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I totally forgot about the playing last year. Portland Did you like uh, the playing this year? Were you? Dude, I loved it. it ended, I loved were you it. Pro or against? Still pro, man. Like I've I've had some arguments with people too about. Um, I I get that we're not getting LeBron and Steph every year. I get that a lot of games may be more like. Uh, maybe not even a Washington Celtics, which was pretty good star power. We're going to get more Charlotte and Indiana's. But if you actually look back at the seven and eight, nine, tens, and I saw some tweet about this in the last 10 years, every year has had at least two superstars. Wow. Or two teams that were interesting. Like, like when I say superstars, top 20 guys. Yeah. So there's always going to be teams that for whatever reason, injuries, um, just things happen and they have a bad season that are going to be relevant there. It's not going to be completely 
all the crap teams we're used to seeing. So I think it's overblown when people say it's not going to be ever this good. And I think at the end of the day, none of these teams, you have a chance to make the top six. And so if you're going to complain that you're seventh and eighth and now the regular season doesn't matter and you know, you're know you four games above the ninth seed and now they have a shot to win, I don't feel bad for you because the now the new norm, the new expectation is you have to finish top six to get into the playoffs. Seven and eight, it's going to become a crapshoot. Yep. And so as teams adjust to that mindset, I think it'll be fine. Right now, they just don't like the idea of like playing a whole season and then it coming down to one or two games at the end. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it this year, three out of six games were close. Uh, I would say one of those three was Spurs, Grizzlies, who nobody cares about. And then yeah. so there are two out of six that were that mattered. Lakers, Warriors, and Grizzlies, Warriors. If they can get to a 50% hit rate on good games, I think it'll work. If there's a lot of blowouts, too, on top of being uninteresting teams, like the Indiana-Washington game was just grotesque, as was the Indiana-Charlotte game. Those were both 30-point abominations then you know i think a lot of the interest will die but it's also whatever it's like a week it's like three days like who cares you know yeah i don't know why people like, care so much about it and if your team's the seventh seed and you get bounced like a guy like for example warrior fans right they're the ones who they're the only eighth seed or out of the seven and eight the four seven and eight teams that caught actually relegated right and missed the playoffs yeah. because of the play-in None of I I know a ton of Warrior fans. None of them are that upset about yeah. it. They're kind of like you know it is what it is. And our a, season was was as a tough. And one. at a minimum, it's fifty percent are guaranteed to move through. So it's a coin flip on the other two teams, um, from those seven. Yeah. Eight. So I I think I mean look I think they can tweak it a little bit more. I think like I said, do it in Vegas. Do it in like a single day. Draw more hype around it as opposed to just you know a couple extra games during the week. But I think the concept overall stands. Yep. All right. We've been avoiding it too long, but we we do have to talk about these last two series in the East. Let's just talk about them together because I don't think there's much to say. Uh, Philly's up 2-0 on the Washington Wizards. Uh, I just – I'll say one thing about that and then we'll move on. We're starting three-guard lineup against the biggest team in the (laughs) league and Scott Brooks refuses to fucking make a change. And – in both games, we got immediately eviscerated by Tobias Harris and Ben Simmons, and I don't understand yep. what we're doing. Um, it is an actual, true travesty of a coaching job. Doc Rivers, by the way, not known as the best in-game strat- strategist. He's running circles around Scott Brooks right now. Um, but I think the benefit is if we get swept or gentlemen sweep, we can move on from the Scott Brooks era and live happier lives. That is all I'll say about that. Do you have anything to add to that series? Not really, except that Ben Simmons heard you talking about him. Uh, what is it earlier today? And and he put up a monster game today he did. for him. I mean, he only had twenty two points, but across the board, eleven fifteen shooting, had his rebounds and assists. No, twenty two um, for him. He should be holding up the wilt. Uh, that should be written <laughs> on a piece of paper. Like I think. That's appropriate behavior if he scores 22. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, last game he had, what, six points, but 15 rebounds, 15 assists. Yeah. So he's not, you know, he's he's contributing all over the place. I, this series is just, yeah, I don't, there's nothing interesting to say about it. We kind of knew this was happening. So I'm... I told my Wizards... I literally, this is the series I've watched the least of. I told my Wizards easily. buddies, I think we win one. This was pre before the series. We win one and look competitive in two more. So right now we looked competitive in game one. 
in game. We one. did not look yep. competitive tonight, so that doesn't count. So we need to try to steal either game three or game four at home. I'm, fo- I'm hoping it's three, but likely it's four after they're up three zero and fall asleep at the wheel. <laughs> Just get the- yep. Um. Okay. Brooklyn, Boston. This one would have, I think, been ugly even if Jalen Brown was playing, but without him, it's. I guess the real talk about the real thing to talk about, and this is a true true storyline, is how good Brooklyn looks with their ten games together. This, I mean, this is what when people were scared about Brooklyn and this amalgamation of talent. This is what they're envisioning. It's you. There's no way you can stop all these guys, and when you do, Joe Harris is still good enough to to go off. And um, they're going to get by with just their offensive firepower. And they'll figure it out defensively. Obviously, there's still a lot of issues. But I think as they play more together, the defensive issues will also kind of start to solve themselves. At least crunch time defense. They're never going to be a good defensive team. Um, and I don't know, man. This team is just too too much power. And this is what I, I've been saying. And we shouldn't read too much into this Boston series because Boston is just looks horrific as well. Yeah. But... Yeah. Like this is what if you're a Brooklyn fan, this is what you wanted to see is is these guys start to click, all of them start to play, you know, off like Harden is getting into a groove again after missing a bunch of time. Durant's already kind of been in a groove for for a bit, and Kyrie's been steady all year. So it's the perfect it's tune-up. but but it's the perfect tune up, right? Because they were it's the perfect tune. They were supposed to fall to number three the way things were shaping up, and would have had a decently, you know, maybe not with this version of Miami, but at least a more physical kind of dominate yep. like just a little bit more of a uh taxing series versus the heat and now they get to cruise past the skeleton squad which is important because now they're going to play milwaukee and so they need the tune-up games because that and i'm going to tell you right now i think brooklyn milwaukee is going to be the best series of the playoffs i think it's going to be the best series we've seen in the last three years it's going to be um, awesome they're, they and match I just up can't perfectly wait. with one another. I don't even know who I would give the edge to. Obviously, you know, they 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 played two games at the end of the season, went one and one, but no Harden, right? So you almost have to like throw those out because Harden's his own. Didn't draft. Milwaukee no Milwaukee won the last two? Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Milwaukee won both. You're right. But Harden didn't play. So how do you factor yep. that in? Does that even it? Does that tilt it in Brooklyn's favor? I don't know. One quick question. And, 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 oh, good. Yeah. I was going to say one quick question about Boston, and we'll talk Brooklyn here to wrap it up. How how close are you to pushing the panic button if you're Danny Ainge or if you're ownership, really? Because Danny Ainge himself could be in question in that panic button. I, you got to push the panic button. Um, what now, does that mean? I, I think it means you, you shop Jalen Brown, maybe. Yikes. He's twenty five. So here's and he's an all star. I mean, isn't he? I think isn't we're getting exactly into, what you'd hoped he would be, and more. That's what I was saying. But like, he's more than what anyone hoped he could be. You, but we're seeing this with the Clippers too. Like when you have two star wings, even when they're elite offensively and pretty elite defensively, right? And you can argue Tatum has become a really good defender. Jalen Brown's a solid defender. But if you have nothing else around them and Boston's struggling to put a team around them and get the, the right bigs in place, and maybe that's a Danny Ainge problem, you have to make some big moves. Uh, Kemba is not the answer. Some, or maybe you get rid of Smart. I know Boston fans love Smart. Um, but you got to make some big moves. And the only reason I bring up Jalen Brown, they won't trade him. 
but that is the biggest move and his stock is at its highest and you could make a big swing to try to shake things up. But if you don't, at the very least, you have to move smart. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess, like you said, because he's their only trade ship. Nobody wants fucking two more years of broken down Kemba's body, right? Like, I know. Nobody yeah. wants all these first round picks that they've missed on, like Neesmith and Langford and Grant Williams and all these dudes. Like, ultimately, none of those players are going to move the needle. They're not going to matter to anybody. You got four guys that matter. You're not trading Tatum, obviously. Marcus Smart is a aging energy guy who and we know how quickly those dudes tumble down the hill right and then you have Kemba who who has bad knees so I guess the question is like who do, who can you get for Jalen Brown like if the if the Celtics offered Jalen Brown straight up for Bradley Beal the Wizards probably say no right because it's only a couple years younger and their Beal is probably a little bit better of a player yeah it's not that yeah so mm-hmm. they'd have to sweeten the offer so then you throw in one of these aforementioned first rounders and maybe an actual pick and is it enough i just i don't know and so i don't really know who that player would be that would suddenly catapult this team into a much different version of uh of you know a team that went to the conference finals three of the last four years so it's not like they haven't had success but definitely feels like after that brooklyn fleecing of a trade it was like oh give them the next five titles and you see how quickly uh that changes and then the fact that they're getting their ass beat by brooklyn is some type of poetry the East is and the East is better. Like Milwaukee's not going anywhere. Brooklyn's not, or Brooklyn might. Who knows? But they're for at least for a couple of years not going anywhere. Yep. Philly's not going anywhere. Right. Um, and New York and Atlanta are upstarts who are in Atlanta for sure is gonna is not going anywhere. And so I I just think and I'm the only one saying this Jalen Brown thing. I don't think anyone's saying he should be traded. But I don't know if you just make moves on the fringes to surround Tatum and Brown when you don't have that many assets, like you said. Um, Neesmith is he's been playing he was playing better towards the end of the season so maybe he's a better trade chip now but you can't make minor tweaks and expect this team to do much better yeah so and they've got time right Tatum and Brown are so young so there's no need to panic but Ainge maybe it's it's I don't think they'll fire Ainge but that's one they have to look at hard because he's grossly mismanaged this roster in a lot of ways yeah um, he was awesome from so, like 2007 to 2014 and has been and he hit on the Brown and Tatum picks, right? Those were not slam dunks. And the fact that they traded down from number 1 at the Tatum draft was a, you know, big dick move that paid off, but he's basically messed up every single other piece around that. Um and they're not going to get high draft picks. So like yep. unless, you know, they trade for it, so you can't expect him to land another gem like he did in the draft. Yeah. He's not good in the mid first round. He's been terrible in the mid first round. Yeah. No good players out of that. And so, and, and trading, we always hear the same story every year. Oh, they almost made the trade. They almost pulled the trigger for this guy. Um, but they didn't for whatever reason. It's like, and he gets credit for bringing in Kyrie and Hayward and Horford, but he let them all walk for nothing. So where does that, yeah. what did he turn those into? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, all right, man. So that's a wrap for us. Um, Appreciate everyone listening. Uh, Hope you're all enjoying the playoffs. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops on all major podcast platforms. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Thick and Thin Hoops. And email us at thickandthinhoops at gmail.com. We will talk to you next week.